Hello. I'm back. Are you ready for more of the anybody's? What? You are? Well, that's so good because I am ready to read it to you. All right. Chapter five, The Scar. So you see, the bone was saying, if we want to avoid any further drama, I think this is the best course of action. He was pacing now, hands in his pockets, face stern. His hair was slicked back. Fern wondered when he'd done that. And was he now wearing a tie? How could she have missed a yellow striped tie? Had he run to the bathroom to put on a tie? Had one just miraculously appeared on his neck? He was talking in a low baritone. Occasionally he would gesture, a firm chop here, a finger point there. Mr. and Mrs. Dredger were enthralled. They sat huddled together on the settee. That's like a couch. Lawyers would only further tangle the arrangement. Mary Curtin is the prime witness. Mary glanced around, startled, her mouth a wrinkly O. You've heard her testimony, seen the documentation. There was a stack of papers on the coffee table. And most importantly, you've seen the evidence. Howard stepped forward, perfectly on cue. Feel free to look him over. Mr. and Mrs. Drudger stared at him. They smiled in a buttery kind of way that made Fern roll her eyes. They looked Howard up and down. Then the scar caught their eyes. What's that? Mrs. Drudger asked. That's the scar that led us to the knowledge that Howard here doesn't have the blood type of either me or my wife. The bone's mouth crumpled a little around the word wife. His eyes glistened. He wiped his nose. I told him I didn't want to learn circus tricks, Howard said. I wanted to go to math camp. Fern groaned inward, inwardly. I knew I couldn't ride that unicycle. I told you I couldn't. The bone explained. The circus is a fine, long-standing bone tradition. My mother, rest her soul, was a trapeze artist. He turned back to Howard. I thought you were a bone. I thought you'd take to it like a fish to water. How could I have known you come from, from pasty heritage? Fern wanted to yell out, from bland descendants, from a long line of dullards. The dredgers looked at the bone, waiting. He cleared his throat and swept his hair back with a soft stroke. From such perfected stock, he finished diplomatically. Mary Curtin spoke up. Mr. Bone thought that Howard might need a blood transfusion. He didn't. But Mr. Bone is sensitive about people losing blood because of his, she paused, previous loss. Fern was still holding the picture of her mother. Her eyes filled up with tears, but she didn't want to cry. She wiped them away, hoping no one would notice, but the bone did. He looked into her eyes. He wilted a little, then snapped to, clapped his hands. Well, well then, summer. We'll trade for the summer, see how it goes. No lawyers. This way we can avoid any more drama, the drudger said in unison. Good, it's settled, said the bone. Mary Curtin lifted herself from the sofa. I feel that something's been put right. I can't tell you how relieved I am about this, although I still feel horrible. She busted another gasket and tears spilled down her cheeks. By now, though, everyone had seen enough and ignored her. Howard was sent to get his bags from the car, and Fern ran to her room to pack enough for the summer. She was nervous, excited. She packed quickly, not bothering to fold anything. She crammed a few of her favorite books in a zippered side compartment of her suitcase and shoved a few new barrettes into her pocket. She took her diary from under her pillow. Fern wouldn't go anywhere without that. She pulled a key with its string from the ceiling, unlocked the diary, and slipped the photograph of her mother into its pages. She then snipped the string with a pair of scissors from her desk and turned the key on the string into a necklace. She said to herself, I'm not a drudger, I'm a bone. 
Magnets and flyers aren't in my bud, in my blood. Neither are lawn treatments or ironing boards. I'm a bone. My mother had big eyes and my father's got lumpy hair. She was trying it on, seeing if she could believe it. She almost could. She smiled broadly and then she thought, my mother is dead. And the smile slipped from her mouth. She tucked the diary into her bag and at the last minute grabbed the slightly crumpled umbrella from her closet. The umbrella that had belonged to the nun. Or was it the lamppost? By the time she ran downstairs, Howard was in the kitchen, already eating from a white dinner plate. Mr. Dredger was staring at the boy from across the table. He's got my skin. He's got my head. He's got your thin neck, dear. Mrs. Dredger broke away for a moment to hand Fern a few pieces of butterless toast wrapped in a white paper towel and an envelope containing crisp bills perfectly arranged in ascending order. Good luck, Fern. Fern felt a nervous speech revving up in her mind, something of the you-might-be-thinking variety. But then there was a warm hand on the top of her head, the bone, and a soft pat on the arm, Mary Curtin. Suddenly, she felt completely calm. Thanks, Mrs. Drudger. Thanks for everything, and good luck with Howard. Howard, said Mrs. Drudger dreamily, are Howard. Did you notice how she started calling her Mrs. Drudger instead of mother or whatever she used to call her? All right, we are now in part two. Things aren't always what they seem. Oh, that was the words that was on this on the snowflake uh, papers. Okay, so they start the chapters over again in part two. So we're we're on another chapter one. This is the art of being anybody. <sighs> I love reading to you. This is so nice. Okay. The Bones car was old, rusted out. It growled cancerously. It pitched thick balls of gray smoke out of its tailpipe. The Bones seemed to be volleying more than steering. He'd turn the wheel, and eventually the car, would, the car would decide to go in that general direction. Every once in a while, one of the wipers would bump along the windshield, stall, then bump back again. One of the back seat doors was tied shut with rope that was attached to the driver's headrest. The ceiling lining, which had been originally set at some distant and probably now abandoned factory, had come unglued and hung like the stretched-out underbelly of an ominous cloud. Fern's mind fluttered momentarily back to the man from the Census Bureau with the misty gray hand. Fern was nervous again, and the bones driving didn't help any. Mr. and Mrs. Drudger, though not known for their eye-hand coordination, were flawless drivers. They always kept both hands firmly on the wheel, never went over the speed limit or below it. They always used their blinkers, they never cursed, and were never cursed at. Fern had been in the car with the bone for only a few seconds, and he'd already had someone blow a horn at him, for good reason, as he dipped into another lane for a second, and though he was clearly in the wrong, he'd blown his horn back. Fern, however, doubted the other car had heard the horn. It sounded like a wounded goose, a very old wounded goose. You should try making a wounded goose sound. It was like a weird honk. Let's hear yours. Okay, you want to hear mine? <laughs> I don't know if that was very good, but that's okay. All right. Where were we? Wounded goose, wounded goose. Um, I now drive such a car as this. Oh, this is the narrator again. I now drive such a car as this, more or less, and I hope one day I can sell the book and become wealthy enough to sell the car, or its handful of working parts, so that I can look back on these days with a deep fondness and nostalgia that one real that can one 
that can only really take hold when you're poolside, sipping, sipping something fruity. You did a good job, Mary, the bone said. The tears were very nice. You overdid a bit, just a little. I did. She was rubbing makeup off her cheeks with a hanky, looking into a broken vanity mirror that was attached by duct tape to the car's visor. Fern was confused. Mary had overdone what? Why was she taking off her makeup? Just at the end there, it was too much. The bone behind the wheel shook out his hair so that it fluffed up more on top. What was too much? Fern asked timidly. Well, you were very compelling, Mary told the bone, ignoring Fern. Honestly, I was a little scared of you. You were? The bone was grinning, full of himself. Yes, and where did that tie come from? Mary asked. Oh, it just popped into place. Inspiration, I guess, the bone said, clearly impressed with himself. What do you mean, inspiration, Fern asked, a little louder this time. But again, the two of the two up front chattered on. Well, Howard is always reliable. He's like clockwork. He's dependable. A good kid in the end. Mary and the Bone seemed very happy, all charged up. They'd succeeded, that was clear. Fern wasn't sure, though, if she had wanted them to have succeeded. Were they fakes? Had they succeeded in fooling the drudgers? Her? Fern's heart started to tighten with fear. No, she told herself they were nice. Howard, too. Howard wouldn't have fooled her, would he? Fern sat in the back seat, slumped low, trying to be invisible. Mary Curtin untied her flowered rain cap and tugged off a wig. And as if her high, fluttery voice were attached to the wig, it dropped too. Mary Curtin was suddenly not Mary Curtin, but a man with close-cropped hair. Went perfect. I was crying at the end because it was all so perfect. I got emotional. Fern swiveled around to get a view of her house on Tamed Hedge Road, disappearing in the back window. The white house with cream shutters looked like every other house in the row, and now there were more rows of white houses with cream shutters. Fern felt dizzy. She pressed her hand to the window. She thought she might cry. She suddenly missed Mrs. Drudger's blah food and Mr. Drudger's weedless blah lawn, which was always mown in perfect lines, which she wasn't even allowed to walk on. She missed the clean, scentless living room. She was suddenly afraid she'd never see the Drudger's or her house ever again. Fern didn't Fern didn't start a little narration in her head. No, this time she shouted, You're liars! Are you stealing me? I'll start screaming. You might think I can't scream, but I can, very loudly. And you might think that I'm a weak, scrawny little girl. But I know some karate, and I know how to bite really hard. You might think you've got me, but you would be wrong. Very, very wrong. I can't tell you how wrong. And then Fern screamed. She screamed high pitch. Loud and long, she screamed an enormous, almost perfect scream. Okay, so remember, is this book real or fiction? Mm-hmm. And so she's going to be unsafe or safe? Yes, you are right. It is fiction, and she is going to be safe. Don't worry. Now, here's the narrator again. Here, you could possibly decide that this is an altogether bad book. If these two have abducted Fern in any way, shape, or form, then this would be a story with a lesson to, to kids always being on guard and never straying from home. What if, uh, let's see, oh, this is a bit about gender again. If Fern were a boy, this thought probably wouldn't cross your mind. What if Stuart Little had been a girl? He would have been, we would have arrested her parents for allowing a young girl to sit off alone in a motor car, that's what. What if Harry Potter had been a girl, spirited away by a giant of a man with a magic umbrella? We'd have said no, no, and tsk, tsk. You may think that girls are better suited to stay in little houses on prairies and within the confines of secret gardens, or at least working with a buddy system. Wendy couldn't have gone off with Peter alone, you know. 
Would you have picked up with Violet Baudelaire being hunted on her lonesome by that man with the singular eyebrow? And there's always that foursome traipsing around in Narnia. Susan, Lucy, Edmund, and Peter, which is fine because at least they're trying to stick together, protected by their older brother. But Fern isn't a boy. She's a girl, and she isn't in a buddy system. She's alone. Yes, she's in a car with two men, one of whom was dressed like a woman moments earlier, evidence of trickery, but you'll just have to see it through. And please don't go rooting for a moral about girls being good or punished for adventure like Little Red Riding Hood or Goldilocks. You won't find it here. Not on my watch. Whoa. Okay, we need to pause for a moment. So many books just got mentioned. All right. Um, I'm going to go through them, and you, if you don't know these books, you might consider reading them. Okay, Stuart Little, Harry Potter. Okay, then there's the part about um, girls in little houses on prairies. What book is that? Yes, Little House on the Prairie. There's a bunch of those. And Within the Confines of Secret Gardens. That's from mm -hmm, The Secret Garden. Then there's all this nonsense about Wendy and Peter. Um, and that's from, yep, Peter Pan. Now this next one, I don't actually know. Bo Violet Baudelaire with a man with a singular eyebrow. I don't know that one. You should uh, tell me if you know. And then Narnia, that's uh, Susan, Lucy, Edmund, and Peter live in Narnia, or go to Narnia, I guess. That's the, um, do you know that one? Hmm. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then at the end, they talk about Little Red Riding Hood and Goldilocks. That was a lot of books in one whole, in one page that they told us about. Whew, I wonder how many of those you've read. If not, you've got some work to do. All right, back to the book. Finally, Fern stopped screaming. The scream had worn itself out, but it felt very good to Fern, who hadn't screamed for as long as she could remember. Silence filled the car. It was the kind of silence that follows something extraordinary. Out of respect, like when you read the last page of a great book, and you close it and just sit there for a moment, completely quiet and still. Not that you'll do that after finishing this book. I wouldn't be so bold as to plant that thought in your mind. No, 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 not me. <laughs> in any case, it was that kind of silent moment that lingered. The ex-Mary Curtin was the first to speak. We aren't stealing you, he said. No, no, we'd never steal anybody, said the bone. But you're dressed like a woman, Fern said to the ex-Mary Curtin, and, and you, you were pretending. Where did you get all that, where did you get that tie all of a sudden, and what about your slicked back hair? Were anybody's, the ex-Mary Curtin explained calmly. Anybody's, Fern said. We're a group, the ex-Mary Curtin said, of, of professionals. Professional anybody's, Fern asked. Exactly, said the ex-Mary Curtin, as if that explained everything. The bone said sharply, I told you no one knows what anybody's are. He glanced back at Fern. You have no idea what he's talking about, do you? Fern shook her head. Most people don't, you know, the ex-married curtain said to the bone. I mean, if everyone knew about us, we wouldn't be doing our job very well. The bone said, your mother had these gifts as a child. His voice cracked. Fern thought for a moment he might cry, but he cleared his throat and went on. Some anybody's are just born anybody's, naturals, and some have to learn it like us. We're practiced, anybody. Your mother, the bone paused again. Was he about to cry? He sniffed and rubbed his eyes. She was a natural, and when she was young, a book came into her possession, a one-of-a-kind book, and it was called The Art of Being Anybody. She was already good, and then she became really, really good, 
She taught it to me, and I've taught it to a few people, a very few. Me, for example, the ex-Mary Curtin said. Howard, the bone said, I tried to teach Howard. And what doesn't anybody do, Fern asked. Well, natural anybody's, who knows? They can do lots of things that I could only imagine. But practiced anybody's, we can do two things. First, we can be anybody, the bone said. The ex-Mary Curtin interrupted. For example, today I had to be somebody specific. Mary Curtin, and I was. You mean you can dress up like anybody else and people will believe you? You mean you're actors? Fern knew immediately that she'd said something very wrong. The ex-Mary Curtin erupted. What? Actors? Please. Actors? Ha! said the bone. Can an actor shrink 15 inches to be a child? The greatest anybody's of all time could take on the body of a table, of a flea. It's mysterious. It's elevated. It's grand. Oh, Fern said. She was thinking of the bird that she'd seen get hit by the car and how it shivered into a dog. She wondered if a great anybody could do that. Could a great anybody turn into a nun and then a lamppost? Could a great anybody go from being a bat to a marble or take the shape of a mean gusty cloud? She decided not to bring up all of that. She decided to keep her question simple. What's the second thing? Well, the second thing was my specialty, said the bone. I could help other people become better versions of themselves. But how? Hypnosis and deep concentration and something else. What else? We're not sure. It's a third ingredient. I used to have it, but now I don't. So things go a bit off. I've got some kinks in the system nowadays, and I'm nothing compared with the greatest, most famous anybody alive today. The bone lowered his voice to a respectful, hushed whisper. The great Rialdo. I've met him two times. And there is the other master, too, don't forget, the ex-Mary Curtin said, the miser. There was a hot moment of silence. Fear remembered the warning for Howard had given her. Watch out for the miser. The bone slumped down behind the wheel. He said, there's no need to talk about him. But he has gotten better and better, and we certainly haven't, that's for sure. The ex-Mary Curtin turned to Fern, confessing, I was never very talented. Not bad, but never great. Your father was very, very good. The miser is no Rialdo, and he never will be. The bone seemed winded, almost breathless now. It was clear he didn't like to talk about the miser. He said to Fern, Look, I mean, the truth is, I'm your father. That's the bad news. The sad truth, Fern. I'm a has-been, a washed-up hypnotist, a washed-up anybody. Oh, Fern said. She didn't really understand what an anybody was, but she knew that being a has-been must be terrible. The bone seemed to sag under the weight of these failures now. Fern felt sorry for him. It was true that she couldn't really trust a word the bone said, but she still wanted to comfort him. That was how she felt. She wanted to tell him that everything was going to be just fine and to maybe pat his head or even hug him. But she didn't. She hadn't ever been in this position before. The drudgers had never needed comforting. They were so self-sufficient, like wind-up toys that could wind themselves and goose-foot on forever. So Fern, not knowing what to do, didn't do anything about wanting to comfort the bone. You're not so bad nowadays, the ex-married Curtin said, but it sounded weak. The bone looked at him sharply, then said to Fern, I'm not a very good father. I won't go around being mushy with you. I don't believe in all that. I get, in the long, I get along in the world just fine without it. That's okay, Fern said. The drudgers weren't mushy types. Although Fern was relieved that she hadn't patted the bone on the head, she was a little disappointed that there would be no mushiness allowed here either even though it seemed the bone was often on the edge of tears, which she decided was best to ignore. 
I'm Marty, said the ex-Mary Curtin, reaching over the seat to offer his hand to Fern, who shook it. I've been friends with the Bone for a long time. My wife and I took care of little Howard until the Bone got out of jail. Oh, Fern thought she should say thank you, because Marty and his wife would have taken her if the babies hadn't gotten swapped. But it didn't really make sense to thank him for taking care of her since he hadn't. So she asked a question. Where's Mary Curtin? Uh, she lives next door to her mother right here in town. She gave up nursing. That part was definitely true. Helps to sprinkle in the truth, Marty told her. Helps give a more convincing performance. Mary Curtin got married. We talked to her and her husband. We had dinner together. She's a great cook, but she's an anxious woman. She never would have been able to go through with something like this. The bone was quiet, letting Marty chatter. He kept his eyes on the road. There was a lull in the conversation. Fern was thinking, trying to process everything she'd learned. The bone piped up. I just knew you were my daughter. I knew when I saw you. His voice was soft for a moment, but he didn't let it stay that way. Well, it was clear as a bell. But how long have you been planning this? You didn't lay eyes on me until tonight. Not true, not true, said the bone. Marty delivered a pizza to your house two weeks ago. And I'm the good humor man you've seen. I hate that tinkling music. Home, home on the range, a million times a day. So that's why they had seemed a bit off. Fern didn't tell them that she'd been suspicious. They both seemed to have fragile egos about their anybody abilities. But it seemed like those oddities in her life, those inexplicable happenings, might just have been real. And Howard? What has Howard been? I'm teaching Howard how to hypnotize other people, but he isn't old enough to do the transformations himself. Howard kept it running. He kept us on track. He had graphs and charts, the bone explained. Fern was putting things together. Which one of you was the man from the Census Bureau? What? The bone asked. What bureau? Who? asked Marty. Nothing, Fern said. No, the man from the Census Bureau had been a bad force. She thought of the miser and felt that old dread again. But just then, something else crossed her mind. They were at a red light in the middle of town. Fern quickly took off her seatbelt, the only thing that seemed to work in the car, and looked at the bone's face. His eyes looked familiar. His chin seemed to jut out just so. Fern stared at him, and he stared back like he was going to ask her a question. A question about her scissor kick? Yes, her scissor kick. Fern gasped sharply, a yelp, really, and flopped back in the seat. Mrs. Lilliapole, my swim teacher. In the flesh, said the bone proudly. I would have preferred being a softball coach, but you were bent on swimming, and there was an opening for a girl's swim coach at the YWCA. And the woman hiring was a real feminist, wanted to hire a woman. That was clear. If you cut a Nerf football in half, Marty explained, and stuff each end into a swimsuit, it gives a pretty realistic look. As a visual aid, he pulled two halves of a Nerf football out of his blouse, <laughs> the way Fern Science teacher used the plastic model human being with her removable innards. Back in our prime, of course, neither of us would have had to rely on such things. Fern couldn't shake the image of the Census Bureau man in the dark cloud. She had to ask, could you ever turn yourself into, say, just for example, a bird? And then if a cat came along, could you turn yourself into a dog or into, I don't know, a cloud? Us, the bone asked. Are you kidding? Maybe, just maybe, if our lives depended on it, we could have some sparkling, great sparkling moment. But knowing us, I doubt it even then. You and me? Ha! Marty said, shaking his head, almost laughing. Nope. Once the bone almost became a dog, he shrank to four short legs, grew fur even, but he couldn't get the tail or the muzzle, and it took three days to get even that far. Oh, well. Important thing is that we got him back. It took all of our concentration, mine and your mother's. He could have stayed that way, you know. Odder things have happened. 
they have. Fern had trouble believing that there were odder things than turning yourself into a dog and getting stuck that way. The great Rialdo can turn into a dog in three seconds, Sabone said, but you know what I mean, Fern. You've seen it happen, right? Remember the swimming pool? Fern didn't respond. She wasn't ready to admit to anything, not yet. You see, she was very well trained by now not to mention such things. She sat there, clamped down, eyes narrowed, as drudger-like as possible. Something loose in the car rattled. A few things, actually. Fern held onto the door handle to see if the rattle would stop. One rattle did, but the others jangled on. I have to say, Fern, the bone continued, it was at the pool that things became clear. The bat, remember? Fern stayed perfectly still. It wasn't planned. I don't know why it was there, but it was remarkable. It was remarkable, Fern was thinking. She squirmed in her seat. She thought of the whistling kettle. Finally, she blurted, I saw it too, how it changed into a marble and roll away. I know you saw it, the bone said calmly. You do? Yep, you denied it. That's what made it clear to me that you're mine. Any other kid would have been shocked, would have had a million questions about how a bat could become a marble. Any other kid wouldn't have been able to shrug on, shrug and go on with their lesson as if nothing had happened, as if that kind of thing happens all the time, Fern finished. Well, not all the time, but often enough. And why is that? You're being watched over, the bone said. I don't know why. He didn't dwell on it. But Fern wondered if it was the good kind of being watched over or the bad. We had to figure a way to get you out, at least for a summer. I'm hoping you've got your mother's head on your shoulders, just like you have her eyes, the bone said, but then he blushed. I don't mean anything by that. Your eyes are nice enough. I didn't say they were beautiful or anything. But for that moment, Fern thought that someone actually meant that her eyes were beautiful. She felt shy all of a sudden. She sat back and buckled her seatbelt again. She fiddled with the key that hung from the string around her neck. Fern wondered if the circus was in her blood, if she could be in anybody, if she could turn other people into better versions of themselves. Could she turn the drudgers into being something other than dull? She wanted to ask questions about the miser, but didn't. There was one thing that needed to be very clear. Fern didn't want to ask, but she had to. My mother is really dead? There was a pause. Yes, the bone said. Fern closed her eyes. Howard had been right. He hadn't fooled her. She missed her mother now deeply. And it was strange because she'd never known her, had never known that she existed until just that evening. The missing was more painful than anything Fern had felt before. The image of her mother in the photograph holding her belly appeared in Fern's mind. It was all she had of her. And the book, Fern asked, her book, The Art of Being Anybody, where is it now? Marty humphed and shook his head. Funny thing, he said, no one knows. It was in their house before the bone went to jail, but things were packed up after, well, after, you know. The bank came in and took everything out to sell. Could be anywhere, really anywhere. Not that it would be of much use. It was written in a certain code only your mother could decipher. The car got really quiet then. Even the windshield wiper froze as if holding its breath. Or you, the bone said. What? Fern said. Marty went on. Now that we know about you, well, the idea is that maybe you'll be able to decode it. Your mother figured it out when she was your age, and then she could write that way. She even wrote coded grocery lists, sometimes out of habit, he sighed. The book has more secrets, many, many more. And we don't want the miser to get his hand on it, the bone said. You needed me, so you, come and, so you came and got me. That's the only reason, because you think I'll be able to decode some book, some lost book. Fern was angry now, more confused than ever. No, Fern, the, the bone said. I came and got you because you're my daughter, and for better or for worse, 
You should know me. The rain was letting up. Fern could have told them that she did have some powers. Hadn't she once gotten a book to cough up bunches and bunches of crickets? That wasn't exactly being an anybody, but it was something, wasn't it? Hadn't she once turned snow into scraps of paper that asked her, things aren't always what they seem, are they? Yes, she had, and it was true. Anyway, maybe it was nice to be needed, Fern thought, though she wasn't sure she could help at all. She gazed out the front windshield and noticed there was no rearview mirror. Isn't, da- isn't it dangerous to drive without a rearview mirror, she asked. I prefer to look into the future. I prefer to see what's coming. Well, I look back, Fern, in life, I mean. It's a waste of time. I never look back, do I, Marty? Marty stared at the bone but didn't answer. The bone squinted out onto the dark road. He seemed distant suddenly. He said, I can still smell her lilac perfume. Your mother always smelled of the sweetest lilacs. Hmm. I wonder what you smell like, or maybe your mother, or maybe your dad, or maybe your little brother, or your sister. You should go sniff everybody and and decide what you think they all smell like, and let me know. I'm very curious. Part two, chapter two, the bad hypnotist. The bone stopped in front of a trailer in Twin Oaks Park to drop Marty off. Marty's wife was hunkered in the small metal doorway. She was a tall woman, so tall she had to stick her neck out, ducking her head down to fit in the small frame of the door. She was wearing a yellow bathrobe, tied too tightly at her middle, and pink spongy hair curlers. Her chin was set in a menacing scowl. By the way, Marty said to the bone, you owe me money. We weren't talking about money, were we? No. Then how can it be by the way? It can't be, can it? The bone asked. I think it's an expression to say by the way, Marty explained, a little defensive. People say it all the time, even when something isn't by the way. Yes, but it should be reserved for when something is by the way, don't you think? The bone said heatedly. I mean, what would happen if there was no clear communication? We may as well all speak gibberish. Do you want us all um, to speak gibberish? Marty had to admit that no, he didn't want everyone speaking gibberish. And so, Fern noticed with a bit of pride, the whole issue of the bone owing Marty money disappeared. Marty looked at his wife. He mumbled, wish me luck, and then he hopped out of the car. The Nerf football halves under one arm, he spread the other wide open and called to his wife. What are you doing awake? You need your beauty sleep. She didn't move. Her glare only tightened on him. Not that you need your beauty sleep. I mean, you're always beautiful. What's the matter with you? Marty's wife started in. I don't like that bone character. I told you a hundred times. The bone hit the gas to drown her out. The car hesitated, coughed, then chugged off. Fern looked out the back window. The trailer was lost in a cloud of exhaust. But as the exhaust thinned, the cloud took on a smaller, tighter shape. In fact, the dark cloud followed, rolling alongside the car like a dirty tumbleweed. Fern refused to look at it. She tried to listen to the bone, who was talking about his house. Now, my place, the place I'm living in now, it's just a temporary dwelling. It isn't fancy. I don't go in for fancy. I like a roof over my head and plain living. Fern rubbed her eyes and looked out the window again. The dark cloud was still there, though it was tripping along, sagging in on itself with exhaustion. It's not like Tamed Hedge Road. It's not a house on a street like that, but it's nice enough. She rubbed her eyes and looked again. The dark cloud was finally gone. 
and the neighbors are good folks, you'll see. You'll be charmed. It's quite charming in a rustic kind of way. Fern knew what the word rustic meant. Reading books will give you an excellent vocabulary. My old writing teacher used to say that reading his books and his books alone would, would give you an even better vocabulary. Although I respect his paunchy belly and his horn-rimmed spectacles and his way of pronouncing things, much like an over-educated British butler, I didn't always agree with him on every point. In fact, perhaps I wasn't his favorite student. Fern thought she was going to a farm, a charming rustic farm. But rustic is a tricky word. They'd driven away from Tamed Hedge Road, away from Twin Oaks, towards seedier and seedier parts of town. There were neon signs in storefront windows, car dealerships, run-down houses, and abandoned lots. The bone pulled in front of a string of houses separated by alleys as narrow as a rat's rump. <laughs> he bumped up over the curb, then the car plopped down with a disgusted sigh. The houses backed up to a railroad track. The yards were nearly bald. The grass patches, interrupted by mud pocks, were mowed raggedly. He looked at his own yard and sighed deeply. A man was standing there, shuffling his feet around, his head bobbing back and forth. Now, Fern liked adventure. One of her favorite books was about a boy who came home from school to find a toll booth in his bedroom, and he drove a toy car through it into a different world, which sounds a little absurd to me. But as much as Fern liked reading about adventure, she was feeling a little nervous about the one she was actually having as she stared at the Bones neighborhood. Okay, pause. Do you know what book that is? The boy who came home to find a toll booth in his bedroom? Now, this is going to be a surprising title. It's called The Phantom Toll Booth. It's kind of a confusing book, but, but really weird in a wonderful way. I highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, let's see. It was growing dark. There was only one streetlight working. The other looked like they'd been smashed by rocks. She kept an eye out for the dark cloud. Was it hovering behind the tire swing? Was it behind the dumpster? Fern thought of the drudgers at their house, where maybe they were teaching Howard to brush his teeth in small circular motions. She was glad she wasn't there. But was she glad she was here instead? The bone got out of the car. Fern did, too. She grabbed the black umbrella and her bag, feeling the top for the hard outline of her diary, which held her mother's picture. She slammed the heavy door behind her. The next-door neighbor, a woman with a mop of blonde and black hair, sat on her front stoop smoking. She said, You've been here a good couple hours, just strutting around like that. Aside from the pecking movements of his head and the occasional flap of his arms, the man looked normal, wearing corduroys, a white shirt, an ugly necktie, and a leather belt. He seemed absorbed in the pecking and strutting and hadn't noticed Fern or the bone yet. The bone nodded. He took Fern's bag for her, hoisting it to his shoulder. We'll have to make a run for it. He paused, then called out to the neighbor lady. We expecting a train soon? We're always expecting a train soon. They come every five minutes. Only way I tell time. Look, you going to do something about him? The woman asked. The bone didn't answer. He lifted his head, straining forward. Fern could hear a small rumble in the distance. Train, the bone said. Wait, wait. The train was getting closer now. Closer. The noise rising up. This startled the man. He began bobbing frantically. No, the bone shouted. The train rattled loudly, creating a gust of wind. The man was squawking. The bone ducked his head and ran quickly past the man. Fern followed. The bone was at the door now, rummaging for keys. Fern glanced over her shoulder at the neighbor woman and the man in the yard. The train had passed and the man was settling down. I know you know him, the woman shouted. I don't, the bone said, shouted back. 
he ain't going to howl, is he? He ain't going to start to hoot or something and go all night. I'll call the police if that kind of mess starts up again, you hear me? It'll be fine, the bone assured her. He's a stranger. Maybe he's lost. I'm sure he'll go away on his own. It'll be fine. It didn't seem that way to Fern. The man had fixed his eyes on Fern and the bone. He was now high-stepping it toward them. Just before he was in striking distance, and it did look like he was angry about something, the bone found the key, jiggled the lock, opened the door, hustled Fern inside, and slammed it. Whew. Who's that? Fern asked, shaken. Who? The bone asked. The man in the yard. Him? Oh, well, I'm not perfect, the bone said. Hypnosis is a tricky business. Anyone will tell you that. Sometimes things go a little haywire. He signed a contract, though, fair and square. He's got no grounds to come after me. You said you didn't know him, Fern said with a small accusation in her tone. Bone lied. That's what Fern was figuring out. He lied a little bit quite often, and although this made her a little bit mad, she also understood it. Being Fern Drudger had entailed a good bit of lying, too. Only now she knew she hadn't been making up the things she saw. She hadn't been fibbing when the Drudgers accused her of it. No. But she had been lying in a way every time she narrowed her eyes for them, Every time she kept her mouth shut when she wanted to let a choir out of her chest, she lied by being the way they wanted her to be. And why had she lied to them? Well, to please them, to make things easier for them. And wasn't that what the bone was trying to do? He wanted things to go smoothly, for the man in the yard to be a stranger so that everything could be nice for himself, but maybe for Fern too. Maybe he wanted Fern to like him. But here's a little fact. Lying to a fellow liar is quite tough. Liars are the best at catching liars, and so his lies didn't work on Fern. She'd catch him every time, and maybe this was the biggest relief of all. Her lies wouldn't work on him either. She couldn't pretend to be a drudger in front of the bone. He'd see right through her, just like he had at the swimming pool when he was Mrs. Lilliapole, wearing the plastic nose pinch and the flowered bathing cap and the skirted swimsuit. He knew that she had seen the bat and the marble, and she wasn't just any kid, but his kid. I don't technically know any roosters, and that's what he is. Fern looked at him in such a way that he knew she knew better, and he smiled, a small, guilty smile, accompanied by a small, guilty shrug. The bone flipped on the light switch, illuminating a small hallway. There were two doors, one to the right and the other straight ahead. The bone unlocked the door to the right. We only have the bottom floor. The Bartons live upstairs. They're clog dancers, I'm sorry to report. I'd like to add here that the Bartons, though you'll never meet them in this book, are actually quite famous clog dancers. That is, in clog dancing circles, which tend to be very, very small circles. They stepped into the apartment. It was still dark and muffled, too, with a distant ching, ching, ching. Oh, no. They're tiny bells. Ching, ching, ching. Of ti little tiny bells. Although Fern didn't know the names for everything she smelled, here if you. Garlic? Heavy Indian incense, blooming narcissus, Chinese food gone bad, cedar chips, mothballs, a mix of oranges and onions, and mint. The bone flipped a wall switch. A dim light flickered on, and at the same time, music came on too from a radio in the corner. Horns and a singer singing, Hope the sun gonna shine, hope the sun, hope the sun, hope the sun gonna shine on down. The walls were draped in velvety cloths like in a movie theater, and there was artwork on top of the draping, framed shoe inserts, a fish made out of tea bags, a painting of dental floss, which made Fern think how funny and beautiful and sad life was all at the same time. They were nothing like the single painting in the Drudger's living room of the Drudger's living room, which only made one think of the Drudger's living room. 
There was a card table with pop-out legs and two folding chairs, an orange knit sofa, and a bunch of beanbag chairs that had seen fluffier days. The bone walked quickly to the windows that were covered by heavy curtains. He pulled each one back, peering out. Spies, he told Fern. The miser knows something's going on. He's hired a ring of spies. They pressed their cups against the windows and tried to hear what my next step will be. It was hard to believe that anyone would spy on a place this strange and small and unofficial looking. Fern had a more glamorous impression of spies. For example, that they had equipment that was higher tech than cups pressed to windows. But she could tell that the bone believed in the spies, even if she didn't, not yet. At, oh, even if she didn't, not yet at least. Fern turned around in a slow circle, taking the place in. Uh-oh, get yawny. She'd always wanted to feel at home someplace in the world, but was this it? She doubted it. It didn't feel like home, not really, but she kind of liked it all the same. It was so different. That's what she liked about it most of all. The bone walked into the cramped kitchen. He could only open the refrigerator door six inches before it hit the opposite wall. Are you hungry? Thirsty? Both, Fern said. I've got an onion, oranges, a can of mushroom soup. He pulled out some Chinese leftovers, sniffed, tossed them in a plastic garbage can. Sounds fine. I used to have a dog, the bone said, but when he went to the circus, but when we went to the circus, you know, where Howard tried the unicycle, the dog decided to stay. He had some high-quality tricks, and I suppose thought he was wasting his talent on such a small audience as Howard and me and sometimes Marty. Fern wandered around the living room. There was still a good bit of dog fur, an extra coat on the sofas. Why do they call you the bone? she asked. I'm as tough as a bone. I'm not at all soft, said the bone, but he was a little flustered, like he didn't care for the question, like he was lying. I've always been called the bone, and so that's that. Okay, Fern said. She didn't want to upset him. When Bone came in with the food, Fern was holding a framed photograph. It was a picture of the Bone and an enormous man with a boxy nose, arched black eyebrows, dark circled eyes. The two were standing, laughing, pointing at each other. Your mother, the Bone said, a hitch in his voice, took that picture. That guy was my best friend, but not now. Fern stared at the man's face. She felt a chill. He scared her. She remembered the angry glare of the man from the Census Bureau and his dark, ghostly hand. The miser. That's right, the bone said. Fern stared into the miser's eyes. Were They were the same as the Census Bureau man's, weren't they? Had the miser been the gusty, dark cloud that had tried to pull her in, closer, whipping at her clothes? Was the miser capable of turning himself from a bird to a dog with one shiver? But the bird couldn't have been him. She'd liked the bird. It had watched her kindly with its little head cocked and its eyes wet. You were once friends, she asked. Yes, best friends. I keep the picture as a reminder. We grew up in the circus together. The spies are a troop of little people. The miser knew them from his ties to the circus and hired them away. My mother was a trapeze artist, as I said, and his father was the strong man. He ate nails. The miser was once the sweet, sensitive type. He was named the miser as a joke because it was the opposite of who he really was. He'd write you an apology if he thought he'd hurt your feelings. He resorted to trickery, but I tell you, he made sure we were always the good guys. But now he's after you? Fern asked. He was in love with your mother, see, and she loved me. He never got over that, I tell you. He got me put in jail as soon as I married your mother. The bone shook his head, sighed. I don't want the miser to get his hands on that book. It's powerful and he shouldn't have it. 
You see, the book doesn't really mean much to either me or the miser. It's just a big coded mess to the two of us. Only your mother could make sense of it. And he was hoping that Howard would be born with some of Eliza's powers and that he'd understand the book. I guess I was hoping, too. It was clear that Howard wouldn't be able to make any more sense of it than we could. He lacks the gifts. But then the miser found out that you existed, and now he wants that book again, because you're the key to unlocking it. Honestly, Fern, and I'm not used to being honest, but I want the book because your mother loved it. I can picture her now walking down the street toward me, lost in thought, the book held tight to her chest. That big old leather book was a small leather with a small leather belt wrapped around it. Your mother kept it safe, always safe. He seemed to drift off drift off a moment here, lost in the memory, and Fern lost herself too. She liked this glimpse of her mother, a young woman carrying a giant book. Fern could relate to it. She loved books too, and she loved imagining that she and her mother had this in common. The bone came to and went and went on. Now we're both looking for the book, and he wants to make sure he gets it first. Your mother would want me to have it, Fern. Me. The miser thinks the book should be his, but he's wrong. Your mother left it for me. Fern wanted to see this book with her own eyes. She wanted to feel the weight of it and carry it locked to her chest. And you don't know where it is? Nope. Shoved his hands into his pockets. The book is for me, for you, for us, Fern. We have to find it first. The book holds more secrets. Dark secrets. He could learn how to hypnotize nations, Ferns. Fern, and he wouldn't do any good with that. None. Fern felt that sense of dread again, the windy pull of the dark cloud. The bone. Oh, excuse me. The bone looked at Fern. She knew her eyes were wide with fear. She hadn't known that there was so much at stake. I didn't mean to scare you, he said. I I'm not scared, Fern said, but she was lying. It was too late. She was already scared. The bone held out his hand, and Fern handed him the picture. He sighed deeply. Your mother, she was the real thing. Before I met her, I could make people waddle around on stage or sing silly songs for the audience, but your mother taught me how to be an anybody. I was already an okay hypnotist, but together, the two of us, your mother and me, we could cure people. Together, we never turned anybody into a rooster. We were healers, really. Now I try to cure folks, and that's what happens. He pointed to the front yard to the rooster man. The bone turned back to Fern. Go ahead and eat. Fern wasn't sure if her hands were shaking because she was frightened or starving or both. Mr. and Mrs. Drudger preferred oranges so dry and pruned that their white casings were brittle. Their soups were homemade and tasted like wet air. She'd never eaten an onion before, much less a raw one. Here the orange was so juicy it dripped down to her elbows. The soup from a can was salty. The onion tasted like a sharp sting. She gulped whole milk. Chocolate, in fact. The bone was up and down. He watched her eat some, gazed at the photo from time to time, but he was often drawn to the front kitchen window, where he kept an eye on the man in the yard. Is he still there? Fern asked a few times anxiously. Yep, still there. Fern looked around the apartment. There was one neat corner with a shelf of oversized books. Fern could read the titles of the books from where she sat, things like The Complete Book of Mathematics. Fern assumed it was Howard's territory. That was one thing she missed here at the Bones, her small but growing library. All the books seemed to be Howard's. Didn't the Bone have a few of his own favorites? Fern couldn't imagine going without books. Howard's area was small and tidy. There was a box of earplugs and an and air spray, regular scent. 
Howard. Would he really love being with the Drudgers? Could he? Hadn't he liked something about living with the Bone after all these years? Wouldn't he miss it? Fern already felt different, and she'd only known the Bone a few hours. When Fern finished eating, she wiped her mouth on his sleeve. It was a test. Mr. and Mrs. Drudger would have scolded her. She wanted to see what the Bone would do. He said, you like my cooking? I once had an anybody gig as a French chef. Those were the days. Fern imagined the bone in a puffed white hat. It made her smile. She almost said, I'm glad I'm here. But she didn't. She was pretty sure the bone didn't want to hear anything that might come off as soft. He told her he didn't like anything mushy. Plus, she was still getting used to all of it. She felt so off kilter. She said, I'm glad I'm not still at my house. That was the truth. She was happy to be relieved of math camp and lost lake and boredom. But she was scared, too. She wanted to help get the book before the miser did. But what if she wasn't able to? She was just a kid, after all. And not even the type to be the first one picked for kickball. Or the second. Or the third. What should we do about the miser, she asked. How can I help? Well, said the bone, there's a more pressing issue. He looked at a clock on the wall. The clock looked unreliable at best. It had faded numbers, and the nine had slipped down so that the clock had two sixes. The second hand was inching uphill. It got stuck, then sprang five seconds forward. Mr. Harton. Who? The rooster's name is Mr. Harton, or it was Mr. Harton, before he gave up selling vacuum cleaners door-to-door to become a rooster. And come morning, he's going to start to crow. But I've got a hunch. I've got a feeling that you'll be able to cure him. Do you think so? I tried to wink at you while I was Mrs. Leopold. I was trying to get you to look at me, but you never would. But then I finally did wink at you, Fern. Remember? When you were going upstairs of the dredgers, and you winked back. Probably didn't think you were going to wink, but you did. And if an anybody winks at another anybody, even an anybody who isn't really an anybody yet, they've got to wink back. It's one of the rules from the book. And you winked, Fern. Naturally. You winked. All right, you should try winking right now so that if it turns out that you meet an anybody, you can wink back at them. I can really, I guess I can wink with one eye and the other eye, um, but I kind of make weird faces. If you aren't sure if you're winking, you could go look in a mirror and see if you are, or ask someone to watch you wink and tell you if you are winking with each eye the same, or if you need to practice more with one. Okay, that's your challenge. Do some winking. If you want to make a video of you winking, you could send it to me. That'd be fun. Okay, do you want one more chapter, or should I stop? One more? No, not more than one more, but one more. Okay, so this is part two, chapter three, Dehypnotizing Mr. Harton. Oh, my old writing teacher, sometimes I still think of him, like now, right here at part two, chapter three, Dehypnotizing Mr. Harton. If he could see me now typing fervishly, he would have to admit that I do look like a writer and act like one. I may even smell like a writer, but I'm not sure what writers smell like. Ink? Erasers? Books? He would be astonished, I tell you, because he never had faith in me. Not one ounce. Some teachers just don't know the gem sitting right in front of them. Like you, for example. You're obviously a gem, and you probably have one old stinker of a teacher who doesn't have any idea. Well, you'll show that teacher one day. You will. You will. Like I am at this very moment in part two, chapter three. Oh, and after this, there's more, more, more. 
In fact, I will promise you right here, right now, some very freakish, bizarre behavior and outlandish surprises. Read on. Before inviting Mr. Harton in, the bone vacuumed. Mr. Harton then left his demonstration kit behind, and the bone wanted to use the sample vacuum before he'd, had, he'd have to give it back. He didn't own a vacuum cleaner, and maybe you recall that the bone's apartment was still very furry from the dog that had left him for the wider, more appreciative audience of circus life. Fern watched the Bones' harried vacuuming job. He started out on the orange sofa. Fern had never seen anyone vacuum furniture before. A flurry of motion. He was nothing like Mrs. Drudger, who vacuumed in diagonal rows. The Bone vacuumed the same way he must have mowed the front yard, in ragged starlight clusters. He'd probably borrowed the mower, too, Fern thought, and she was right. He shouted the story of Mr. Harton over the small, thrumming vacuum motor, and Fern listened intently, trying to dodge the vacuum zipping noise. Mr. Harton was a terrible salesman, Fern. He couldn't sell fat mice to cats. He slouched. He was shifty-eyed. He mumbled his delivery. He lacked confidence. Most of all, with confidence, you can sell anything. Remember that, Fern. That's important. I let him in because he was so pathetic. I told him that I could help him with his pitch. I could get him the cockiness he needed to be top-notch. So I hypnotized him. He left here so full of himself he didn't want to sell vacuum cleaners anymore. Said he was going to sell condos or something. He had a brother's he had a brother who'd made a fortune in condos, so he left. But he's back. What happened? The bone had strayed too far from the outlet. The plug popped from the wall. The vacuum cleaner's motor, wheezy from the intake of so much fur, wound down, its stiff lung deflated. It's the same thing that always goes wrong these days. I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but they seem to they seem so overcome with their new personality that they turn into some animal version of the trait I've given them. Once a stupid man turned into an owl, and a woman who wanted to have children turned into a rabbit. Doesn't always make perfect sense. Once an old man wanted to be young, and he turned into a baby kangaroo. This made Fern nervous. She didn't want to be turned into something ridiculous, and she hoped that the bone couldn't do it accidentally. She worried about him now, the way you worried about someone wandering around with a lit match who could bump into the curtain, setting the whole place on fire. No one ever showed up at the front door to complain when your mother and I were together. No one ever showed up trying to catch flies with their tongue. The bone scratched his chin with his knuckles. The process has developed some cakes. Fern fiddled with the key on her necklace. She thought of her diary with her mother's photograph in it. She was still not used to the idea that she had another mother, much less that she one she would never get to see. Do they have to live like that for the rest of their lives? Oh no, it wears off in a couple of months or so. Months? But you'll be able to set Mr. Harden right, uh, straight right away. I know it. Fern was doubtful. I will? But I have no idea what to do. She wanted to explain to the bone that she wasn't very good at doing things in general. But maybe there had been some kind of mistake. I mean, so much of what Bone had said fit in with the strange aspects of Fern's life, explaining some of the unexplainable. But this? Fern was sure she was going to disappoint the bone, and she didn't want to. He had his hopes pinned on her. Don't worry, I'll walk you through it. It helps that you have the gifts handed down to you. I don't want you to be just a sideshow act. I want you to be someone who can really help people one day. But there's that other ingredient, the one I had once but don't know. But don't, don't, but don't now. He, get, he gazed off for a moment, his eyes catching on the photograph his wife had taken of him and the miser laughing. In the bone's defense, and I do defend the bone because although he's kind of a squirrely guy and imperfect, he is good deep down. Hypnosis is an imprecise science. 
actually, when you think of chemistry with its H this and its O that, and when you think of biology with its test tubes and beakers and its dissected worms, well, hypnosis isn't a science at all. And it isn't really an art either, in light of the Mona Lisa and ice sculpting and baton twirling. And it isn't a sport, because you don't get points or win those statues and miniature golfers or divers glued to the marble. So I'm not sure what to call it, but really it's murky territory. It's mysterious. Yes, that's it. It's a mystery. The bone set to work. He opened the apartment door and when the main door and then the main door to the house. He walked out into the yard behind Mr. Harton and flushed him inside by clapping and waving his arms. Mr. Harton was all high step and flap. He stood in the middle of the room, his head bobbing now and then. He stared at Byrne and then started to preen. He used his nose like a beak, picking at his shoulders. The bone rolled the vacuum cleaner over to Mr. Harton, and, but Mr. Harton didn't even look at it. The bone rolled it back and forth right in front of him, but again, Mr. Harton ignored it. That's a bad sign, said the bone. He's in deep. With a little force, the bone sat Mr. Harton down in a chair next to Fern at the table where she'd eaten. Her orange peel sat in the empty soup bowl with the tough heart of the onion and its crisp brown skin. Okay, said the bone, trying to get him to look at you. Try, try to get him to look at you. Try to catch and hold his stare. Prince stared at Mr. Harton. He had pale blue eyes that looked a little teary. They darted around the room, falling occasionally on Fern's eyes, but was but not staying put. Fern moved her face to block his view. She was certain that she wouldn't be able to do it. She was bound to let the bone down, and what then? Well, terrible things could happen. Mainly, the world could come to an end. But Fern reminded herself, she runs into a dredger who fibbed because of an overactive dysfunction. Her real mother never would have called her a fibber. Her real mother would have understood. Fern caught Mr. Harden's eyes, then lost them, then kept them again. Fern had tried to do this. She had to. She kept at it, and eventually he was staring at her out of one eye, his head turned away, as if he were a bird with an eye on the side of his head. Yes, she had him. The bone slipped Fern a pocket watch on a gold chain. The pocket watch didn't work, of course. The bone didn't keep track of time, as you all know by now. But the watch was shiny, and on its long chain, it swung nicely, which were the qualities the bone looked for in a pocket watch. Hold it up by the chain. Make it sway back and forth and back and forth. That's right, you've got it. Fern was making the watch sway like a clock's tick-tock, and Mr. Hardin's watery eyes were hooked on it. Fern was very proud. She smiled at the bone, but he shook his head. Not done yet, he said. More to it than that. Now don't look at the watch yourself, Fern. Don't look at it. He began to whisper into Mr. Harton's ears. You're getting very sleepy, very sleepy. He kept on with this until the man's eyes blinked again and again, more slowly, until they shut and didn't open. Fern let the watch drop to her lap. Bone, the bone handed her a bell, small and brass with a black wooden handle. Then he put his hands on Mr. Harton's shoulder. He said to Fern, say these words, you are not a rooster, you are a man. Return, return, return. And ring this bell softly, softly each time you start to say it again. Try that. Fern rang it once, then started to say, you are not a rooster, you are a man. And the bones started to hum a deep, low note. Fern felt something electric, a snappy static all around them. Each time the bone took a breath to hum again, it was like a car trying to start up. There was a vroom, vroom of energy, something buzzing and zapping, but the engine never really revved up. 
she could feel the electricity rev and stall, rev and stall, but she was kept, but she kept on repeating it. Return, return, return. She was holding the bell in front of Mrs. Harton's face, ringing it softly. Mr. Harton's face, ringing it softly. Her arms were tired. The bones hum was waking up. Finally, he said, okay, ring it loud now. Ring it like crazy. She did, and Mr. Harton startled awake with a gasp, like someone who'd been trapped underwater coming up for air. Stand up, the bone told him. He did shakily. He glanced at the vacuum, and it was clear that he recognized it. Good, gook, the, good, good, the bone urged. Walk to it. Mr. Harton looked at Fern and the bone. He looked longingly at the vacuum cleaner. What is it? The bone asked. Do you want to tell us something? Mr. Harton nodded, nodded and then smiled broadly. He pinched back his head and let out a loud, clear yodel, a clear, timeless cry of cock-a-doodle-doo. Then he put his head to his chest. His face crumpled. His eyes spilled two tears. Fern knew there had been something, some kind of magic charge, and although it wasn't enough, she knew she'd felt it, and it was undeniable. She wondered if spies were listening to all of this, if the miser would hear about this sad failure. The bone sighed, and Mr. Harton half-heartedly stepped to the vacuum cleaner, grabbed its handle, and rolled it toward the door. The bone opened the first door for him, and then the second. Mr. Harton, still a rooster man, bobbed his head, and Fern couldn't tell if it was an acknowledgment or simply a rooster-like flinch. Fern and the bone followed him outside and watched him strut down the street with his vacuum cleaner bumping and rolling behind him. All right, my friend, we are done with that chapter, and the, you know what page we're on? 99! The next chapter is called Spies, chapter 4 of part 2, and it starts on page 99. can't believe we're already there. My goodness. Um, and I, my voice is getting a little bit tired, so I'm going to go make some tea. And I will read to you again soon, maybe even tomorrow. Um, I hope that you have sunshine where you are, or maybe some nice, nice chilly rain to refresh you. And um, let me know if you like this new book. Um, I will say goodbye to Elliot and Celia and Olive and Haley and Tate and Felix, and Noah, and Benji, and Judah, and Nathan, and Julius, and Sydney, and Ander, and Winnie, and Olive, Nora, and Nora, and Peter, and um, Arden, and Paisley, and Poppy, and who else might be listening? I don't know. If I forgot to say your name, you better tell me so that I can say it next time. Okie doke. All right. Bye.